Good morning, church family, and it's so good to be together again on uh, this uh, Lord's Day. Uh, my name is Randy, and if this is your first Sunday here, I'm the, uh, uh, I'm the uh, preaching minister at Windsor Road. And we're in a series of messages uh, through the book of Revelation. And uh, the reason why you see the seven here in the seven churches is because Revelation begins uh, uh, with uh, messages, uh, one message and seven parts to seven churches. These were historical churches. These were churches which uh, existed uh, in uh, the first century. And, um, and the message to them is also a message for us here today in 2009 at uh, Windsor Road. And today, as Katie has mentioned, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, persecution and suffering and taking a stand for Christ when it truly costs us. And my mind goes back to a um, story that I read uh, by a pastor whose name is Jim Dennison. Um, Jim Dennison tells about the time he was serving as an intern in East Malaysia, and he worked at a small local church there in East Malaysia. Um, he got to know the pastor there, and on a particular Sunday morning when uh, the church was gathering, there was a young lady who uh, was going to be making her confession of faith in Jesus before the congregation and then uh, visualizing that profession of faith uh, in, uh, in baptism. And so Jim tells about that and how she came and how she professed her faith. And we've seen that here, you know, uh, um, so many times. He also noticed while he was sitting there in the services that uh, leaning up against the wall just inside there was just kind of a, kind of a small pile of just old ratty uh, luggage. And he, it caught his attention, and then he went on and was paying attention to the service and everything. After the service, he goes to the pastor of that church, and he asks a little bit, why is this luggage here by those walls, by the wall here? And the pastor said, oh, uh, I can tell you about that. He said, you know the girl that was uh, just baptized here in uh, the services? Um, her father told her that if she confessed faith in Jesus and then she went through with the baptism, that she could never, ever come home again, period, ever. And so she brought her luggage. She brought her luggage. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that's a, that's a bring-your-luggage passage of Scripture. And uh, they're hard words to hear. It was hard for the believers who first heard these words. And uh, for many, if not all of us, they're going to be hard words for us to hear. They're words which Jesus spoke to a local church a couple of thousand years ago in the ancient city of Smyrna. And these verses are in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And they're in your Bibles on page 868. And they're also up on the screen. And I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say to this church. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. 
I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Revelation 2. 8 through 11. This is God's word. And they're sobering words, aren't they? I mean, in these verses, Jesus gives and issues a a storm warning, a severe weather warning. Not a severe weather advisory, not a severe weather watch. It's not the conditions are ripe for severe weather to occur, but it's a warning. The sirens have been sounded. The tornado has been spotted. Damage is going to occur. It's headed your way. And there's nothing for you to do except to endure fearlessly and faithfully. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a sobering message. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine Jesus himself coming up to this platform and looking us straight in the eye you know, lovingly and truthfully, gracefully and directly, and saying, listen up, church, some of you are not going to escape. I mean, for some of you, the government is going to come, persecutors are going to come, in the, in the private realm, in the public realm, and you're going to be persecuted, you are going to be arrested, you're going to be hauled off to prison. You're going to be savagely tortured. And then they're, after this, then they're going to put you to death. That's what's going to happen. Be ready. And what you need to understand is that these verses, I mean, there's a context here. These verses just didn't come out of anywhere. They first came to a real church that met. In fact, you know, in all likelihood, according to church history, I mean, there was a 20-something-year-old man sitting in the worshiping community in Smyrna who heard these words when they were first delivered. I look out in our church family here, and you know, I'm seeing our different uh, age seasons of life. And, but back then, there was a 20-something-year-old man, and he heard these words And this young man had become a Christian, and in fact, we know this, that he was actually a, uh, we know this from information outside the Bible, that, that he was actually discipled by the Apostle John himself. The Apostle John was his mentor. Wow. And so he's, you know, he would have been a part of that worshiping community, and he became a Christian, and he was discipled, and and then uh, over time... Actually, the Apostle John ordained him to be the senior pastor of the church in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp. 
you know, would have heard these words when they were first delivered. The church at Smyrna, I'm getting ahead of myself. But what I want to do is we look through these verses. I want us to, uh, let's just take a little tour through Smyrna and what it would have looked like and to learn a little bit about the city because it was a real city. There's a real context here. And then that'll help us understand what we're reading here when we get to the stress that this church experienced. So I want to talk about the city of Smyrna and the story behind that city. I want to talk about the stress that the church community experienced from the city. And then I want to talk about the stance that Jesus Christ demands his church to take both then and now. So if you're kind of tracking my uh, thought here, we're going to talk a little bit about Smyrna and the city and then talk a little bit about the, the stress that the church was under and then the stance. Smyrna, stress, and stance here. The city of Smyrna. In fact, I've got some pictures here. Uh, this is Smyrna. This is Western Turkey, what is now Western Turkey. And Smyrna, actually, this is uh, of the seven cities in the book of Revelation. Smyrna is the only city that still remains as a, as a, a living city, uh, so to speak, today. And it is known as the city of Izmir. Izmir. And uh, uh, you'll see that it's 35 miles north of Ephesus. It, too, is a harbor town. Let's see the next picture. If we were to fly into uh, Izmir, uh, we would uh, kind of take a little uh, uh, tour here over the city. There's just an ocean of modernity there. Uh, let's see the next slide. We're getting closer, and right smack dab in the middle of this ocean of modern Izmir is the island, of, is the archaeological island of Smyrna. And so, I mean, uh, uh, as you get closer here, it, it's kind of fascinating. In this little island of archaeology, you've got, uh, on the background, a parking garage. So, uh, uh, but here is uh, kind of on the ground level of what... Uh, Smyrna looked like. Let's see another slide here. That would have been, those would have been the, the remnants of the car. There's the parking garage. There's the, uh, it's something, isn't it? Um, but there are the columns that would have existed that served as kind of, there was this, it was this beautiful mall that uh, 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 connected two of the several temples that existed 2,000 years ago. Let's uh, look at a couple of other slides. There's another angle of the mall and the columns, and uh, another slide. Uh, you're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna see here in this next slide that there's a, a almost a bi-level feature to this city. You can see the arches, and there's a little walkway underneath that we'll look at. Uh, next slide, and then one more. There it is. Uh, so you go underneath, and and can you imagine? I mean, that's what's left now, but that's. That's been around for a couple of thousand years. Can you imagine what it would have, what have, what it would have been like then? Uh, next slide. Uh, there's a little more uh, uh, of the walkway. In the middle is this little, looks like a little creek. That that's would have been the water drainage uh, from the city back then. That's where we, they would have put it. And that actually would have been covered um, with stones and, and part of the pavement and everything. Uh, next slide. Another uh, of, the, of the walkway. And then another slide. Um, another angle of kind of the same thing. And then next slide. Uh, that would have been part of the structure that would have been on top of this huge skyline that they called the Crown of Smyrna. 
the crown of Smyrna. I'll talk about that in just a little bit. And then one more slide is uh, what's left of what would have been a lion outside the, uh, the stadium, the athletics there. So you go to this city of uh, modern buildings and you see just this little archaeological island of a world 2,000 years away, a world called Smyrna. Smyrna uh, is from the word myrrh, and myrrh was a spice that we used in burial. So there are themes here. We're going to be hearing uh, local knowledge of the city in this letter, and in fact, Local knowledge is a part of each one of these letters because they're, they're, they're personal to the place. Smyrna, myrrh, spice, death, burial. Um, it was a city of 200,000. That's, that's huge for a city in the, in the ancient world. 35 miles north of Ephesus, as I said, known for beauty and known for pride. It was called, it was, called, it was self-described, the city called itself the first of Asia, the first of Asia, uh, because they had a little rivalry going on with Ephesus. It's known as the birthplace of Homer. It was uh, first built around the time of King David. The city was leveled and destroyed about 600 years before Christ, but Alexander the Great uh, rolled through, and he looked around and said, I'd like this city to be rebuilt. So it died, but then under the influence of Alexander the Great, it came back to life. And it was the very first city in Asia to build a temple to the, Ro- to, to the goddess of Rome called Roma. And uh, because of its good relationship with Rome, Smyrna, Smyrna bet on the Roman Empire before Rome became a world power. So they got in early, and they reaped the benefits of that, and because of her good relationship with Rome, Smyrna beat out the other cities for the privilege of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and there were uh, four or five other temples in uh, the city itself, and, 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 and you know, what we need to understand is that um, that, would, the econ- that would be like the major building that's occurred over our 20 years here, on North Prospect. The economy that's created by all of those temples. Uh, because they, those temples employed people and it created, uh, uh, it created a, a marketplace. Uh, people did not go out to eat in restaurants back then. They went to the temple, one of the different temples. And, uh, and so that's why Paul talks about uh, food being sacrificed to idols, you know, all of that kind of plays into their culture. And, uh, and there was a library, there was a baths, a gymnasium, a stadium. These skylines, as I said, kind of rose up, and it, from a distance it looked like a crown, calling it the crown of Smyrna. Because Smyrna was so uh, uh, faithful to Rome and they were patriots, one story tells that when Rome was uh, in the middle of a uh, war and the soldiers were uh, literally uh, cl- uh, without any clothing, clothing, the citizens of Smyrna, the good citizens of Smyrna, took the clothing off their backs in winter and gave it to the shivering soldiers uh, because they were, they were, I mean, you cut them and they 
They bled Rome. That's how committed they were to the empire, and that's why Rome remembered them, and that's why they were allowed to build this temple to the emperor Tiberius, and that's why the citizens of Smyrna several times a year would gladly make their trip to the temple and pray to the emperor Tiberius or offer incense before that emperor because that's just what good Roman patriots did. And every good citizen of Smyrna did that except the Christians who said very politely but very clearly that we will pray for the emperor. We will cooperate with the leadership of the emperor and live orderly lives in that kind of cooperation. And we will show respect to the emperor, but we will not pray to the emperor, and we will not burn incense before a likeness of him, a statue or a bust or whatever. And we will not use words to an earthly king which are meant only for the ruler of all of the kings, Jesus Christ. We won't do that. We won't. And they didn't. And Smyrna was highly offended at this. Highly offended. And this community, which was incredibly prosperous, put the financial squeeze on the church. And the Christians became impoverished. Uh, I'm talking about economic sanctions. I'm talking about a boycotting of businesses. And can't, I mean, think about this for a minute. Being in a situation where, you know, food and shelter and clothing and the basic necessities of life are the only way you're going to look around. The only way you're going to get it is from a fellow brother or sister in Christ in this room right here. Because you're not going to get it out there. You're going to get it in here. And just as you saw that picture of this ocean of modernity surrounding this island of archaeology, huh? that pretty much pictures the way it was like for the Christians there in uh, the end of the first century and on into the second century. I mean, they were literally surrounded all the way around. And, and Jesus says, I know your situation. I know, I know your afflictions, your pressures, and I know your poverty. And that word poverty means abject poverty. They are becoming impoverished because of their beliefs. And Jesus says, yet you are rich. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the Christians started uh, feeling the poison of gossip from the slander of those who claimed to be from the faith of Abraham, but in fact they were they were just poisoning and gossiping in the community about the Christians there. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Oh my. So here they're, they're on, a, they're on a, a head first collision course with their government, but then at the same time they're being rear-ended by some religious fanatics who want nothing more than to see uh, uh, you know, them ostracized and marginalized. And Jesus says, I know what's going on. 
and the worst is yet to come. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. So, you know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, you're not going to have a good plan here. It's going to get tough. You're going to suffer. He says, "I, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, you know, at face value, it sounds like Jesus saying, hey, it's going to be hard uh, for you know, a week and a half. Suck it up. You'll be okay. And I understand that would be a pretty straightforward reading. But we need to unpack that because that's not really what's being said here. First of all, you need to understand, Jesus says, I tell you, the devil, the devil. Notice it's a different word than the word synagogue of Satan. See? Satan means adversary, but devil means accuser. So it's a heads up to these Christians that the pressure, that there's going to be judicial activity here. There's going to be pressure that's going, and, and you are going to be hauled into the courts. And you need to understand that when you are hauled into the Roman courts, and when the government gets involved, you need to understand in no uncertain terms that the, that the source of all of this is not Rome, it's Satan, it's the devil. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Prison. The Romans did not build prisons back then to rehabilitate people. They didn't. They simply built prisons to detain prisoners long enough until they would be executed, see? So you were either going to be in exile on an island, that's, it's either that or you're on death, it's either Patmos or death row, it's one or the other, and this is death row. He's saying, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Why does he say 10 days? He says 10 days because the believers in the church there, many of them came from a Hebrew background. And so that word, that phrase, 10 days, would have immediately triggered in their minds what happened to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. When Daniel was exiled, and uh, when he was brought before the, the, the king and prepared to meet before the king's court, and they were given a meal, and, and they were told to eat, and this food would have defiled them with their Hebrew lineage. And Daniel 1 verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And then it says, please test your servants for 10 days. You see that? Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink and compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days days. So that phrase 10 days means it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a difficult season of testing. At the same time, it's a limited season of testing. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be limited. It's going to have teeth, though. And you need to understand that. And what Jesus is trying to tell this church is that, you know, Satan is launching an attack. You are going to need to endure the attack But I want you to know I am monitoring the attack. And you are not alone. And you need to understand that. And that's why he says, don't be afraid. Because I am with you. I'm standing among the lampstands. You are not going through this by yourself. And I understand that we can hear all of this and see pictures of a world that existed 
you know, in yesteryear. And at the same time, we're going, okay, you know, why is this happening? You know, why, why does God allow this to happen? And I want to try to address that as best as I can here this morning, just in the next few minutes. Uh, one answer just is something that John told us in 1 John chapter 2. You see, there's the kingdom of this world, and then there's the kingdom of God. There's the city of this world and the city of this God. And those two worlds, those, those two kingdoms, those two cities are diametrically opposed to each other. And you just need to understand that. That when you, when you become an heir to the kingdom of God, at the same time, you become an enemy to the kingdom of this world. That's why, John, that's why the apostle John said and wrote in 1 John 2, To these churches, do not love the world or anything in the world. If if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. There are two different worlds here. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand what it means to belong to the city of God, to the kingdom of God. And, and Charles Colson summarizes it very well in a book that he wrote, I'll just, the title of the book, Kingdoms in Conflict. Kingdoms in Conflict. 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history capped by a full exposition in Jesus Christ tell us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more than it is accepted It is dismissed by far more people than those who embrace it, and it has been either attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it has given its witness, whether it's magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, Enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all these cultures, but always as a minority and always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant. They are kingdoms in conflict. And that's why this suffering is occurring. And that's why that girl brought her luggage and yet at the same time, I understand some of you may be uh, still asking, yeah, but Randy, why does God, why doesn't an all-powerful, all-good God allow this kind of horrendous evil to occur? Why does he allow this to happen? Because, you know, Christianity does teach the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, all-loving God. yes. And yet some people push back on that. They say, well, how can that belief be reconciled with the horrors that occur every day? I mean, if there is a God, he either must be all-powerful but not good enough to want an end to evil and suffering, or he's all-good and he just can't fix it. Hmm. I mean, either way, the God of the Bible couldn't exist and, and, and That's the argument. And for many people, and maybe for some of you here, I mean, that is not only an intellectual problem, but that's a, it's a personal problem to you because you come into these, into this room hurting 
a, a life marred by tragedy and abuse and injustice. You know. And I understand the question. And I understand the issue. And, um, and these verses speak to that. They really do. And, and here's what I mean by that. If God himself has suffered, if God himself has suffered, then our suffering isn't senseless, is it? If God himself has suffered. See? For, for, well, first of all, if you have a God who is so great and so transcendent enough that you're mad at him because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have to, at the same time, have a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't possibly know. You can't have it both ways. And, and, and secondly, you know, even though we don't know why he allows this to continue, it's not because he's indifferent or uncaring. It's not. Because the Christian God, unlike the gods of Rome then or the gods of the world today, the Christian God, he takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he enters into it. And he gets involved with it himself. Which is why Jesus Christ himself suffered on the cross. And that's why the author of this message is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Who tells those Christians then and Christians now, I am the first and the last. Meaning I'm sovereign and I was dead. Referring to his crucifixion. And anything that you're experiencing, church, I've gone through it. I know you're suffering the slander. I know that. I did too. And I know that some of you are, you are going to be put to death. I know. I was too. But I want you to know that the victory that was mine through my death and burial and resurrection, that is a victory that is going to come to you. Because they may be able to scratch you in the first death but they're not gonna be able to harm you in the second death. And that's why you can be fearless and that's why you can be faithful because I'm not gonna leave you and you're not gonna be by yourself. When you suffer, Jesus says in these verses, to them and to us, when you suffer, you be fearless and you be faithful because you are not by yourself. You are not alone. I am with you. That's what he's saying here. That's why he says, you be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He who, you know, listen up, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that young man, Polycarp, he heard those words when they were first spoken. And he became the senior pastor of the church of Smyrna. And, you know, we even have a letter that Polycarp wrote because he became kind of a regional leader in western Turkey. There's a letter that he wrote to the Philippians. And it was a letter of encouragement 
stay truthful, stay faithful, keep loving. And then about the year 155, A.D. 155, he'd been the senior pastor of that church for, I don't know how, he was 86 years old. There's hope for me. The pressure intensified. And the law started, an arrest warrant was put out for him. And his church, I mean, they loved him so much, they said, you know, you get out of town. I mean, let's, you know, just, just get out of town. Just, you know, leave. Just get out of town. We've got a little place. We've got a little hideaway, a little cottage for you. And they loved him so much. They, they went there, and he finally relented, and he went. I was reading about that, and I thought, man, they loved his church so much. I wonder what they would. I, I choose to believe that my church would do the same for me. I, I'm going to stick with that, okay? So he was holed up there in that cottage for a little while. Of course, you know what happens then. They took one of the assistants, one of the servants there at the church, and they tortured the servant until they got the information they wanted. So they went after him. He saw him coming. <laughs> he saw him coming. So he opens the door and he greets him. And you know what he says to them? He says, you guys look hungry. Can I fix you something to eat? Come on in. So they came in. He <laughs> fixed them a meal. He said, while you guys are eating, uh, do you mind if I just go back into this back room here and just you know, give me one hour of prayer? Okay? So they ate and he prayed. And uh, for two hours later, he came out. They gave him two hours. He said, okay, I'm ready. He told them when he was ready, and they took him. And they took him back into the city of Smyrna, um, and they went to the stadium, and the crowds began to gather. And several government officials said, you know, just do it. Don't, you know, just, just offer the prayer and the incense. I mean, you don't, you don't have to believe it. Just go through the motions. Just do it. He said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not. And, and, and he's quoted for have, having said this. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Yeah. They said, and finally, one of, the, one of the government officials said, we have wild beasts, and they're going to rip you to shreds. He said, call them. I'm not bound to Caesar. And the government official, when he realized he wouldn't intimidate him with wild beasts, he said, all right, we're going to burn you. So, yeah, it's an eyewitness account said that those who were you know, of the synagogue of Satan, they, they actually broke their Sabbaths to go collect wood. <laughs> and they brought it there into the stadium and they built a, a pyre and they put him right smack in the middle. And when the soldiers went to nail him to a post, his hands to a post so he wouldn't, he said, you don't need nails. He said, the, the one who gave me the strength to endure this is the one who will give me the strength to stay right at this spot. I won't move. And so they lit the fire. And, and an eyewitness says 
that as the wood began to burn, it, it burned around Polycarp, almost like there was a dome, and the flames didn't touch him. And finally, a soldier stepped forward with his sword and ran him through. And this is what is written in a, in a document that we have from the second century called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. You can, you can, it's available online. You could access it through my email that I told you about Friday. Here's the line. And all the multitude marveled at the great difference between the unbelievers and the elect. See, city of God versus the city of this world. You know what the difference is? The difference is they were fearless and they were faithful. When you suffer, and you will if you live for Jesus, you be fearless and you be faithful because you're not alone. You're not alone. Amen?